0: Welcome to Woodside. Kids, you are dismissed as you have heard at this time. If you are not a child, please take out your Bible and turn in it to John chapter 12. We're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, verses 1 through 11. Those can be found on page 898 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It's actually been two months since we've started a new chapter, so let's review for a moment Where are we and why are we where we are? We are either beginning or transitioning to the second major part of the book of John. We're moving from first part, the book of signs, to the book of glory or the book of the sign, part two, which is all about the final week of Christ's life. His final words to his disciples, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, which is the sign. If a man died and rose again. You should listen to him, which is all that faith is, listening to and trusting God and what he says. Now, most people think the second part of the book technically starts with chapter 13. I'm not entirely sure. I think it somewhat starts here. Either way, chapter 12 is a sort of transition between the two main parts. We've got uh, the symbolically rich anointing by Mary this morning, the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem next week, some very clear teaching on the part of Christ about His purpose and death. Right? So, so we're getting to the glory. This whole thing is about the glory of Christ. God's glory revealed ultimately in the death and resurrection of the Son of God for the salvation of the people of God. That begins today. With our text, that begins the greatest and most significant week in the history of the world. And John gives half of his entire gospel to it. I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but we'll probably give about a year uh, to this second half of John's gospel. Why wouldn't we? This is the Lord, our Lord. This is what he has come to do. This is our life. There's nothing more important than what is conveyed And contained in these texts. So last week was responses to Christ. This week is responses to Christ. There's nothing more important than your response to Christ. And we've been seeing over and over again that the response, the response that John is seeking, the only right response is faith. These are written that you might believe And our final verse today, verse 11, we'll see again that the chief priests are upset because many are believing in Jesus. Belief, faith, it's the only right response to Christ. But I believe that it is easy for us to get belief wrong. I believe that many often believe that they believe when they do not believe. I believe that for many of us, faith is little more than believing some stuff about Jesus. And so we're so prone to think, and if we believe some stuff about Jesus, come to church on occasion, we're good to go, safe from that scary hell thing, and then we can get on with living our lives as we would like. This text can be a challenging and helpful corrective to that also oh so common but deadly error. Because this is a picture of faith. This is what faith looks like in contrast, very clearly, to what it does not look like. And disturbingly, if I'm honest, I can sometimes see more of myself in Judas than I do in Mary. Just like last week, be careful. It's pretty easy to think he's the villain, he's the worst, and miss some striking similarities that we may have with Judas. I wonder if we were honest if many of us would respond in this scene more like Judas or more like Mary. Let's, let's see. But this is what faith looks like, and faith looks like worship. Another one of those things that it's so easy to get wrong. We think worship, we sing some old songs about Jesus, or if we're a little more mature, we think it's going to church on Sunday. I want us to work on expanding our vision of worship. Uh, I want us to see how big and all-consuming this worship thing is. I am uh, announcement: I told you again, plug. I'm preaching at North Shore Wednesday night at seven o'clock. Free dinner at six. Please come out to North Shore, and there I'm going to be preaching about worship. So it's going to be a worship week, which is good because we are worship week. I see what I did there. Uh, this morning I want you to consider faith in terms of worship, and I want you to consider worship in terms of worth. Worship is about worth. This is going to help us to consider faith, the required response to Christ, from a bit of a different angle. We have started working the offering back into the worship service to emphasize that our giving is part of our worshiping. When we first did a few weeks ago, I quoted, Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, so be asking yourself this morning, what do you truly treasure, value? Love. This is a great question. Sinclair Ferguson always uses this question, and so I've stolen it from him. He's always coming back to asking, our, asking us to consider, what do you think about when you have nothing to think about? Like, What does your mind most naturally drift toward and set itself upon? Where do you spend your money, your time, your attention? What are you pursuing? What are you doing? Because as the characters in this story are going to reveal so clearly, what we do reveals what we love. And what we love is our God. It's what we worship. That's, it's what we have put our faith in. Is that thing Christ? Let's see. We're looking at worship this morning. Apart from Jesus, there are four characters that are named in our story. He's obviously the main character. There are four secondary characters characters. I want to do a sort of worship character study through these four characters. Four worship points, one coming from each of these characters. Point number one, let's not miss Martha. It is easy to miss Martha here with living Lazarus, anointing Mary, and grumbling Judas. So number one, we're going to start with Martha, and we're going to see that worship serves. Worship serves. Then point number two, we'll get to Mary, the one that gets all the attention, In this text, and we will see importantly that worship adores. Point number three, we'll get to Judas, the actual focus of this text, and we will see that worship sacrifices. I'll explain what I mean on that one. And then point number four, we'll close by looking at Lazarus and see that worship witnesses. What is this worship thing that we are supposedly gathered here to do? What do you worship? What is Christ's worth? And what does it mean to respond rightly to him? Here's your sermon putting our four points together. Worship uh, worthy of the king, serves the king, adores the king, sacrifices all for the king, and witnesses to the glory of the king. That's, That's the whole sermon right there. Serves the king, adores the king, sacrifices all for the king, witnesses to the glory of the king. That's worship. That's how we rightly respond to the Christ to his life. So let's read the text. Let's see if this is there. Again, let's make sure that my words and my thoughts and my ideas are coming out of this word. So you need God's word opened up in front of you to John chapter 12. I will read for you verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to follow along and pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, please help us now in this time. Father, please help me. Father, I am a weak and Sinful and ultimately helpless servant, Father, my only hope is you. Our only hope is you. Father, our only hope is that you would work now through your living and active word. Father, we are distracted by many things. Father, we have worshipped and pursued many things this week. Many of those things have not been you. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us the true nature of worship, and that you would do so in part by revealing to us your true nature, how good you are, how glorious, big, infinite, eternal, compassionate, kind. Father, our response to you often falls so short of who you are. Father, show us Christ. Help me to see him. Help me to love him. Help my desire right now to be not my own glory but his. Help my desire to not be to impress or to do my job or to uh, get through a sermon or whatever it could be, but help my desire to be uh, your glory through the preaching of your word for the good of your people. Father, please help us to focus. Other it's hard to preach. It is hard to listen. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Could Father, now work through this wonderful word that reveals to us your son. Make us those by your grace who worship you in spirit and in truth and delight to do so. And we pray that even this time would be an exercise of worship in spirit and in truth as we hear from your word. Father, help us to love your son Jesus Christ and respond rightly to him. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, point number one, worship serves. I want to start with Martha. I know that Lazarus is named first in verse 1, but he's also the focus at the end in verses 9 through 11. So I want to end with Lazarus. Plus, as I said, it's just easy to miss Martha. She gets overlooked in this text. Let's let's not do that. But first in verse 1, we get some context. We get some setting. We get our time and place. And these are important. We first read that it is now six days before the Passover. I don't pass over mentions of Passover in John's gospel. Remember that John likes to situate the movements and the actions and the teachings of Jesus within the context of these various Jewish religious celebrations. This is not merely to mark the date that John mentions the Passover. There's there's much symbolic significance here. Jesus celebrates three Passovers uh, during the course of his public ministry. This is the last one. And John is drawing our attention to this fact. We saw him do this last week twice back in verse 55 of chapter 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Right after the note in verse 53 that the Sanhedrin are now making plans to put Jesus to death. Why does John keep drawing our attention to the date, to the time, to the Passover? It was because the Passover was all about death. It was all about sacrificial, substitutionary death. You will die unless this lamb dies in your place. Well, Jesus is about to die a sacrificial, substitutionary death. He's going to teach us about this next week in verses 23 and 24 and 32 and 33. But, but this is it. We are six days away from Passover. That means that most likely this is Saturday evening. Jesus The triumphant king will parade into the city on the following morning, on Sunday, Palm Sunday. On Monday, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree. He then not cleanses the temple. Remember, he's he's cursing the temple. The fig tree tells us what he's doing with the temple. It is no more. On Tuesday, he will teach for the final time. John doesn't record it for us as the important Olivet Discourse. On Wednesday, we don't know. Well seems that Jesus is in Bethany. We're not told anything about Wednesday. Maybe Jesus is preparing. Maybe Jesus is praying. He knows what is about to come. So Wednesday is silent. And then Thursday, the third and final Passover. Our next chapter is the third and final Passover. Whole lot of teaching of his disciples. Washing their feet. The Lord's Supper. Betrayal. Arrest. And then Friday, trials. Death burial up until this point we've read multiple times his hour had not yet come his hour had not yet come now it has this is it this is the end six days left everything that happens from here on out has great weight and significance this is the most important week in the history of the world everything hinges upon this week and revolves around this week and it starts with this supper It starts with a feast it starts with a party it's probably been a few weeks since the the last chapter jesus has come back to bethany where he raised lazarus connecting this directly to that and we read in verse two that they gave him a dinner i assume because of that to to celebrate to worship to honor jesus the resurrection and the life and first off this is a bold move The Sanhedrin have made plans to put Jesus to death, and they have published those plans. Remember, we were told in 1157 that they gave orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that they could arrest him. Well, these people know where Jesus is, and they don't care to let the authorities know, and they don't seem to be concerned about their own danger, as we'll see that the authorities are out to get Lazarus as well. But Passover, the end approaches, Jesus has returned, let's celebrate, let's eat, and the first thing we read in verse 2 is, Martha served, stop. That's it. That's all we're told about Martha. But that little is a lot. Because we're familiar with this, aren't we? If you know one thing about Martha, it's this. Martha serves. This is what she does. But you probably know this from Luke chapter 10, where Martha is rebuked for her serving. Look at it briefly if you would like. This is, I think this is an important point. It's back in Luke chapter 10, which you can find on page 869. Uh, the story is short and brief. It's verses 38 through 42, Luke 10, verse 38. You're probably familiar with the story, Jesus enters a village. What? It's this village. It's Bethany. Bethany. Maybe this was the the first time that they met. We don't know. Martha welcomes him into her house. Good start. Hospitality. Verse 39. We meet Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Again, just like our passage, Mary is always sitting at the feet of Jesus. Always a good place to be. Verse 40. What is Martha doing? But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord... Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then, tell her then to help me. 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So Luke 10, John 12. Luke 10, Martha serves and Jesus rebukes. John 12, Martha serves and, well, nothing. Now, this is somewhat an argument from silence, but John 12 is after Luke chapter 10. It's after the rebuke. And yet in John 12, Martha is still serving. What happened? What's the difference between the two? It's not the serving. It's the heart, right? It's the why. Of the serving. Luke tells us not just that Martha was serving, but that she was distracted with her serving. Jesus says that she is anxious and troubled, and we know that she is because she is complaining to Jesus about her serving and Mary's lack of serving. Serving is not the problem, her heart is the problem. Her attitude about the serving is the problem. Her complaining about her serving is wrong because it reveals that there is something other than worship that motivates her serving. It reveals that there is something that she values more than the Lord. We'll come back to that. But here in John 12, in this worship text, she serves. And she's not rebuked for it. It's the word uh, diakoneo. We know this word. This is our, our deacon word. It just means to minister, to attend to, to simply care for the needs of another. And such service with the right attitude, the right why, very much is worship. I want us to see this because we see Martha, Mary's grand display and we're like, oh, that's worship. And we can miss Martha. And I want us to see that what Martha is doing is equally worship. What is she doing? Well, she's she's serving her Savior. What is that? Well, that's worship. We haven't yet defined worship. What is it? The word actually isn't used in our text. If you look ahead to verse 20, you'll see it there. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. You see, the Passover is about worship. The Greek word there is a neat one. We've talked about it before. It's proskuneo. Pros just means to or toward, it's a prefix. Uh, Kaneo is just a verb for to kiss. That's all the word means. And this word, this compound, was used in reference to the practice of bowing down, getting low, kissing the ground before a king. He is great. You are not. He is high. He's up on a throne symbolizing that. You are not. You get low to symbolize that. And so this was one of the ways that you would acknowledge that supremacy and his superiority you would do that by getting by getting low. Sometimes you'd kiss the ring or you you you'd kiss the ground. Uh, the primary Hebrew word for worship also literally means to bow down. Psalm 95:6, "O come let us worship and bow down." It's two separate words, but if you wanted to really technically translate that, you could translate it. Oh, come let us bow down and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Why? Because He's our Maker. He's our God. By nature, anything that makes another thing is superior to that thing. God is high. We are not. I am low. I symbolically acknowledge that by getting low in response to His Highness. We just sang it, in all praise to him, to Father, Son, and Spirit. Now our souls we lift, to him our wills we bow. It's about submission, deference, reverence. And so you get worship at its most basic. It's, it's a recognition and acknowledgement of the supremacy and superiority of another. And then it's responding accordingly. It is giving honor, respect. Reverence, praise, glory to that other. It's simply our right response to the person and work of God. That's worship. It's it's the totality of our response to who God is and what he has done. The response of the creature to the creator, ascribing all glory and honor to him, rightfully so and delightfully so, because he is worthy. And so... One of the most important things that we must learn in the Christian life, what I'm trying to emphasize in this point, is that worship is concerned with so much more than singing some songs or attending a service once a week. It is that, of course. It includes that. But biblically, worship is concerned with the whole of our life. Our faith is meant to affect and transform the whole of our life. What we do in and with the totality of our thoughts, words, desires, and deeds. Our whole lives are meant to be lived as worship to God. Right? How we live is worship. We're always worshiping. What we think and do, our life, is revealing our highest priorities and values, our deepest convictions and desires, what we worship. God is not after an hour of your week. He's not trying to feel better by getting you to sing some nice songs to him. He's after your heart. He's after you, the whole of you, the whole of your life. This is what it means to know him and worship him. It's Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your your body, your whole, entire self given to him. That's spiritual worship. And in the Greek, that's actually a different worship word. It's the word latria, which most literally means service. Jesus uses both together in Matthew 4.10, combining our two worship words. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Proskuneo, Latria. Worship serves. Worship hears the word of God, it seeks the will of God, and then it serves to carry out that will in accordance to His word, all to the glory of God. Service is worship. Martha is very much worshiping the Lord by serving the Lord, and so two simple points of application, kind of from this first point. The first is obvious: serve in some form or fashion. Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, you are serving the Lord. I talk with a lot of you. I I hear about some of you have terrible bosses and difficult jobs. My job is so much easier than yours in so many different ways. Mike's a pretty good boss. You guys are a pretty good boss. And it's kind of like I get to work with nice believers who get along with each other. You guys have to work with the world and difficult people. Don't forget, you're not working for them. Your work is ultimately for him, not for men. As for the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. So that menial, sometimes thankless, sometimes tiring, difficult job, you can worship the Lord through that when it's done with that vertical awareness that he is sovereign, he's given you that job, and you are worshiping through how you do that work. Your work can be worship when it's done heartily, gladly, and excellently for him, for his glory. So serve Him with your work. Serve Him with your time, your talent, your treasure. Serve Him with your rest and your recreation. Whatever you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's about worship. It is actively and intentionally seeking to more and more do all that we do for Him in reference to Him in light of who He is and what He has done in light of His grace and gospel. Worship serves in some form or fashion so serve and do it happily do it with the whole of your life and do it for your church we need you we desperately need you i've said this a few times i stole it you'll get all that you want to need out of this church if you do two simple things if you show up regularly and you seek to serve someone else it's that simple and serving others you are serving the Lord. In serving the Lord, you are worshiping the Lord. In serving others and serving Him, you are taking your attention off of yourself as we are so prone to do. I'm so prone to turn all of my attention to myself and obsess and consume. We're going to see that in the next point. That's the nature of sin. As we serve Him and serve others, that outward turn and that focus honors Him and worships Him and blesses others. How are you seeking the good of others to the glory of God? If you're not serving the Lord in some way, how can you claim to be worshiping the Lord? To, to love the Lord, to have faith in the Lord. Worship serves. He wants the whole of ourselves and of our lives. It's all about Him. Second obvious application. Let's stop complaining. I'm the, I'm the complaining king. I am a master of grumbling. But notice from Luke 10 that our serving becomes sinning when we spoil it with complaining. Our service becomes not service when we grumble. Your serving the Lord becomes nothing more than your serving the self when you complain. Because our complaint reveals our heart. It reveals the why behind our what. It makes it clear that we're not doing it for him, but for ourselves to be seen and to be heard, to be affirmed, to be worshipped. Martha is rebuked for her serving when she combines it with complaining. Martha worships her Lord when she serves him willingly and gladly. So quite simply, worship serves. We serve the Lord. We come into his presence with singing. We serve him gladly. We serve him without grumbling because of who he is. So first point, we're seeing that this, this worship thing is so much more comprehensive than we think that it is. Point number two. Let's get to Mary. She's the point, right? She's the one that we always talk about in the text. Look at the title that the ESV gives this section. Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. That's, that's not wrong. But notice something. Notice the actual focus. Remember, you can notice the focus by emphasis, by repetition, by the amount of space that is given to something. Mary's act gets one verse. The response to that act particularly Judas, it's five verses. It's five to one. The focus is actually more on Judas. We're clearly supposed to see here the contrast between what she beautifully does and what he dreadfully does. But we start to see that contrast by first seeing the beauty of her act, her worship. Our second point is that worship adores Couldn't figure out how best to word this one. Worship loves is the most obvious choice. Again, that word has just been so spoiled and ruined these days that I wanted something else. Uh, Worship delights in. It cherishes. Worship treasures. Many possibilities. Um, Look at the text. Let's go back to it. Martha serving. At the end of verse 2, we see that they are reclining at table. All right. Context. Explain. Cultural. 2,000 years of cultural distance and gap. I, I've never quite understood this. You've probably seen da Vinci's famous painting, The Lord's Supper, in Italy, of course. You can go see it and go visit our friends. Uh, the Last Supper, it's a brilliant work of high Renaissance art, uh, but it is terribly inaccurate, right? terribly inaccurate. First, it's all a bunch of long-haired white dudes, right? not accurate at all, we know that. And if you go look at it, the poor author of our gospel, John, looks so much like a lady that many assume that it must be Mary. It's, like, it's not. We have da Vinci's own writing of who is who. We know who the characters are supposed to be. But John has been so feminized that everyone assumes uh, that he is Mary. Um, no, but for our purposes, the main problem is that they're all sitting up in chairs at a table like we are familiar with. It's just, It's not how they ate. I don't understand how they ate. I don't understand why they ate in this way. I don't get it. But they ate reclined. There was a table low to the ground. They would lay on pillows or pads of some sort. You'd be generally propped up on one arm. You would be eating with the other arm. And the important point for our story is that their feet would then be off to the side, somewhat behind them toward the wall. That's the scene. Dining, reclining Jesus. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Right, because she's not like climbing under the table, like she's behind them, the scene, they're all turning and looking. It's a beautiful scene. We need to clear up one thing first, though. Uh, This isn't the only time this happened. We have an anointing scene in Matthew twenty six. Mark 14, Luke 7, and here in John 12. There's lots of debate about this. It seems most likely that Matthew and Mark are relating their perspective on this same scene. Luke is giving us an entirely different anointing. And people often kind of confuse and conflate the two. In Luke 7, we have not Mary, but an unnamed woman. All we're told about her is that she was a sinner, implying maybe a prostitute... Even we see her weeping over the feet of Jesus. We see her wiping uh, her tears with her hair and then anointing him with oil. That's not this scene. That was earlier in his ministry. Now, there are many similarities. Some even think that Mary is intentionally mimicking what the first woman did. She saw the beauty of it. She saw what a display that it was of worship, uh, of the worthiness of the Lord. And she intentionally does something similar. Again, We don't know for sure. But either way, this is a different scene. This is Mary. Last time we saw her was back in 1132. And she was collapsing at Christ's feet in grief over the death of her brother Lazarus. 12.1, Lazarus is alive. Here then is Mary again collapsing at the feet of Jesus. Not in grief, but in gratitude, in joy, in love. Worship. She takes this expensive ointment. She takes a pound of it. Our Roman pound was about 12 ounces, not our standard 16. And it was pure nard. You know, ironic that this stuff that was so valuable has a name that is so terrible, right? Nard. Maybe it's better in the Greek. No, nope, it's nardos. Maybe a little, a little better. I don't know. Again, I'm no plant expert. Talk to Juliet or Carl or my wife. Uh, but apparently, this was a plant found in northern India at the foot of the Himalayas, which was then taken and made into this fragrant ointment. Think of like a a perfume. So it was rare, it was hard to get, and it was from very far away. Deserts crossed to get it from India to Israel. Thus the price, the value. If you look at verse 5, we see that Judas there estimates its value to be 300 denarii seems that Judas has an eye uh, for these things as he is one very concerned with value. We'll see. The footnote there in verse 5 tells you that uh, a denarius was a day's wage for the average worker. So you take out the Sabbaths, you take out the other festival days where you would not be working and making a wage. You have about 300 days of labor a year. So the value of this ointment is about an average year's salary at that time. So it's it's funny to read old commentaries and read how they translate this differently. So old commentaries are like, oh, this would have been worth about you know $10,000 today. Oh, this would have been worth about $20,000. Oh, this would have been worth about $40,000 today. Well, today, the average salary in the U.S. is a little north of $50,000 a year. And so, again, we can't be too precise with this, but this is about $50,000 that Mary is just pointing out in the span of a few minutes. Maybe this was a very wealthy family. Maybe this was some priceless family heirloom. We don't know. But we do know that whatever this was, and however specifically valuable it was, it was priceless. It's value, very high. Uh, Yesterday, I happily spent $20 on four Levain cookies. I was in Manhattan. If I'm within a mile of a Levain cookie, I'm going to get one or four. I shared some of them. But some of you already are thinking, that's silly. This guy is an idiot. $20 for four cookies, devoured in just minutes. Listen, you might be right. But I happily spend the money because I highly value sugary, buttery, chocolatey deliciousness. Because the enjoyment of such deliciousness is worth it to me, I will then happily shell out and trade the absurdly high $20 for four cookies. Hopefully you're tracking with the basic idea, value, worth. We What we are willing to spend on something reveals its value to us. Side note, Peter and Artesia ended up getting us surprise chip cookies last night. <laughs> Everything bagel cookies, my favorite. It works. Try it. First time ever, Levain, Chip, all in one day. So, it was a good day. Um, But, I pour out $20 on cookies. You may think, what a waste. Mary pours out $50,000 on Jesus. What do you think? Skid, be honest. Worship or waste? We began to define worship in our previous point. Our right response to the Lord of our whole life, recognizing God's supremacy and majesty and beauty and ascribing all that to Him by honoring Him, reverencing Him, praising Him. He is high, we are low, we act accordingly by aligning all that we are and think and do with that basic truth. But our English word, worship, comes from a word that originally meant worth, worth, ship. Worship, then, is to ascribe worth to something. Right? I am ascribing $20 of worth to those cookies and being willing to pay those cookies. Were they $100 each? I would not buy them. They're not worth that much to me. Right? I'm revealing the level of worth to them. So, So worship ascribing worth is recognizing the value and worth of something and then responding to that worthiness right worthiness worthiness rightly with honor and respect and adoration and that's what mary is doing this is what is revealed in her anointing of the feet of jesus with this precious and precious perfume our point is that worship Adores. Mary's pouring is Mary's adoring. She is revealing her overwhelming love for her Lord in her seeking to demonstrate how much she loves the Lord symbolically through her actions. Her actions are expressing what her words would not suffice to say. I sometimes play around with the girls, I right? would joke. Right, it's Tess right now because she's the three-year-old. The others are getting too cool and old. Um, but we'll play. Well, I'll play. I-, I love you this much. I don't right? we'll do the hands, right? You're like I love you this much, and they're like, ah, and we'll go big, big, big. and then we'll try to, you know, we'll try to stretch. No, this much, right? We're trying to stretch out and demonstrate, communicate to her how much I love them. We play the game. I love you more than I love you more than Levain and Chip, or avocado toast, or the Tar Heels, or the Mets, or books or running, and on and on and on. You you get the idea. Here are the things that I love, and that you know that I love. I reveal that I love these things by my uh, attention to these things and time to these things. I love you so much more than these things. I struggle to convey to you how much I love you. Here are some ways that I can show you. All of those things that you know that I value, I love and value more than those things. I love you more than whatever. Mary is showing us how much she loves the Lord. And I think that's all that verse 7 is. I was going through my sermon this morning and I realized that I skipped over verse 7. That's because I don't know what it means Uh, Nobody knows what verse 7 means. It's a notoriously hard verse to translate. There's all kinds of debate about it. I think the sense is simply that this extravagant act of worship on Mary's part is insightful and appropriate as the infinitely valuable person is about to perform the infinitely valuable act, his death, in the place of sinners. This is perfect preparation and praise for that, for that act is ultimately Everything Our life is bound up in his death. What love he demonstrates uh, to us. And so worship loves and adores the great lover and savior of souls. You know, we kind of got our order wrong. We started with the serving, but we must see how the adoring is first. The adoring is foundational to the serving. The adoring is seeing the savior for who he is is loving him and then the serving naturally follows. But I fear that for many of us, for myself I know, our serving problem, our, our our worship problem, is at heart an adoring problem. It's a it's a valuing and truly treasuring the Lord problem, in light of who he really is, in light of his infinite worth. What is the eternal and infinite God? worth? It sounds silly when you put it that way. The answer has to be everything, of course. What kind of response is worthy of the eternal, infinite God? An everything response. If worship is ascribing worth, then in light of the nature of the infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-good creator, savior God, what is rightly required in response to this God is all that we have and all that we are, and all that we do. What's required is our hearts. For this is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's worship. Faith believes Jesus. It believes, remember, not in, but on or into Jesus. Faith is relational and affectional. His perfections are meant to arouse our affections. There is to be a true treasuring and a legitimate love that manifests itself in a gladness in Him, in joy. We should be concerned if we're bored with the Lord. I should be concerned if we're bored, if I'm bored. With the Lord. If worship is the right response to who He is, I should be concerned about my cold and apathetic response at times because these two things do not correspond with one another. True joy, true faith is moving beyond, I believe some stuff about Jesus, to, oh, what a wretch I am. My sin, what an offense and affront. My sin, it seldom ceases. It paints everything. I can't get away from it. I can't do anything about it. Hopeless, helpless. Death deserved. Death, sin against him. But, but, He, the very one uh, against whom the sin is committed constantly, he is the one who has come. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is who he is. This is what he is about. That's the measure of his love for me. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul that does not make your heart glad then you either don't know the significance of your sin or you're still struggling to see that the glory and the weightiness of him are you glad in him is there an increasing affection for him do you adore him love him treasure him the infinitely great and glorious god is worth everything Mary's $50,000 is nothing. It's Not even close to what he deserves. Worship recognizes that he is worth everything and responds accordingly. Not perfectly, of course. None of us respond rightly and perfectly to who he is and his infinite worth. But by the grace of God, that response grows little by little as we see him and savor him for who he is. That's what faith is. That's what worship is. It's the whole souled glad response to his glory and grace. Oh, he really is that good. Oh, there really is an eternity. And I want my life to be directed toward that and not this. Isn't that so clearly how Mary is responding here? She has seen Jesus. She has seen him for who he is, through what he has done. And she has responded beautifully, adoringly, sacrificially. Point number three. Let's get to the bad guy. Judas. Worship. Sacrifices. Do we have any Marys in here today? Are there any Marys? Probably know lots of Marys. I don't know any Judases. Nobody names their kid Judas anymore. Let's be careful. We must see that Judas's response here is worship. We are all of us always worshiping, including Judas. He's worshiping. He's just worshiping the wrong thing. We get the ominous note in verse 4 that Judas was about to betray Jesus. Now, okay, Jesus knew that, of course, but nobody else did. He's got the money back. If the other 11 were like, hey, you know, I think that guy's going to betray Jesus, we should probably take the money back from him. No, they had no idea. This is John writing, looking back, knowing what happened. But John didn't know at this point. In Da Vinci's painting, yeah, we don't know anything. In Da Vinci, it's Judas that's leaning on John and, and talking to Peter. It's, it's, it's like, it's John, it's Peter, it's John, John, Peter, Judas. are all kind of together and close. Again, there was nothing that distinguished him from the other guys at this point. Uh, they didn't know. And it's in verse 5 that Judas assesses the value of the ointment worth a year's work. And he says... Shouldn't this have been sold and given to the poor? That sounds reasonable. It sounds noble. Verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. First, kind of as an important aside these days, we learn here that there is such a thing as selfish, sinful care of the poor that's actually not care of the poor at all. D.A. Carson wisely writes, Social activism, even that which seeks to meet real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. J.C. Ryle, writing over 100 years ago, says, The language of John about Judas shows that this apparent zeal for the poor should often be regarded with suspicion and submitted to close analysis and cross-examination. There are few greater impostors in the world than some of those who are pretending perpetually to care about the poor. It is the successors of Mary and not of Judas who really care for the poor. But they do not talk about it. While others talk and profess, they act. Again, I'm going to be careful here. But we should be cautious when it comes to those who talk loudly and constantly about caring for the poor. Especially when they demonstrate that they care nothing for the soul's. Of the poor. Now, we cannot go to the other extreme. Let's be careful. We are definitely more prone to go to the other extreme and to not care for the poor at all. We cannot do that. We are to biblically love our neighbors. We are to seek to meet real needs around us, all in the context of the care of the whole person and the soul of that person. But I think this is a relevant note, and Judas is a timely warning in our activist heavy culture and churches. Things are not always what they appear to be so be careful judas cared nothing for the poor that's clear that's what verse six says what did judas care about one thing what is it what's the one thing that judas cared about what Money. close judas. that's the answer what judas. judas good thank you harold Haha. i tricked you guys the, the fruit the money that's the easiest answer that's you're correct you are correct he was a thief he liked to help himself to the money there's no clearer illustration here of Christ's words in Matthew 6:24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. But the root answer, the root answer, why anyone serves money, why anyone serves anything other than God, why the worship of false gods? Why the rejection of all gods to worship at the throne of reason or science or pleasure or whatever? What is anyone and everyone, including Judas, ultimately seeking and serving and worshiping? Self. Self. The ultimate idol is self. Ultimately, the only idol is self. Judas's concern is only for himself. His benefit his gain, his pleasure, because he considers himself his highest treasure. And we see that here with Judas's self-focus. And here's where we may be very, very much like Judas. He is worshiping, but he's ultimately worshiping himself. His focus, his concern, his attention is his very self. Mary, her focus, her concern, her attention is entirely on the Lord. Again, you, you are not supposed to take down your hair as a young woman in that culture. It was scandalous. It would have been whispers. You, you weren't supposed to do that. Sitting at the feet of a man, taking the hair down, wiping the neck, like this This was a scene. Mary doesn't care. Mary's focus is so entirely concerned on us. How focused are we, so concerned on ourselves and how we look to other people? You, you, somebody shows you the picture of 20 people. Boom, how do I look? Why right, your eyes first go to yourself? We're so constantly thinking about others thinking about us. Our concern is so we're so prone to be concerned first. With ourselves. Her focus is on the Lord. That's the difference between these two. That's what faith does. That's worship. Judas has just seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. That man is right there. Across from the table. But Judas is so blinded by self. So concerned with a little bit of money. That he can get for himself uh, with it. That he's entirely blinded to the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the life. Capital L life that is right in front of him. And so Judas worships. And in his worship, Judas sacrifices. And listen, Judas sacrifices the Savior for himself. The Savior who came to sacrifice himself for sinners, here this sinner rejects and sacrifices for himself. Again, it's the highest, most tragic of ironies. And we know from Matthew 26 that Judas is going to go on to agree to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly what those pieces of silver are. Many scholars think that pieces of silver was just another way of describing the common denarius. So here Judas sees 300 denarii poured out, wasted in his eyes, and he goes on and sacrifices the Savior for only 30 denarii. That's how little he valued Christ. He betrayed him for that Little. And again, it's easy to write them off. It is so easy to scoff, but be careful. How often are we willing to sell out Jesus for far less? Far less. Just a little bit of pornography. Just a little avoiding of embarrassment by association with my coworkers. Just a little approval from our peers. Let's be careful, of villainizing Judas. Because we can sell out Christ for a lot less. And we can quickly value many things more than him. And so we sacrifice. So it is the very nature of worship to sacrifice. We are always giving something up that we have determined to be of lesser value to gain what we have determined to be of greater value. We are always making these cost-benefit analyses, and we are revealing our hearts and what we love through them. What are you giving up? What are you sacrificing? What are you worshiping? Judas sacrifices the Savior for a little money, gain, comfort, security, whatever, a little self. Mary sacrifices great wealth in worship of an infinitely greater Savior. And Who is the fool? Who is the wasteful one? Worship is never a waste. The worship of this Lord. You can never give up Too much to gain this Christ. Jesus is never a bad bet. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What is the eternal and infinite God worth? Everything. Thus it is worth sacrificing everything to gain him, to worship him because of who he is and what he has done. Does our response to this Christ in any way reflect his worth? and let us not miss the sobering warning that Judas serves one may go far and long in a profession of faith without any real possession of faith there can be much appearance of grace without any actual experience of grace and that demonstrates itself here in Judas's absolute focus and concern with himself This is is the very heart and soul of sin. This inward turn. This deification of self. This rejection of the God who created and sustains that self. No, no thanks. You're wrong. I don't want you. Judas reveals his true character both in what he is willing to sacrifice and what he is willing to sacrifice it for. Take note. These are the first recorded words of Judas in this gospel. Not only that, These are the only words of Judas in this whole gospel. This is his one line. What is it? It's words of complaint. It's words of cynicism. And as is all complaining, the root of that spirit is self. An unflagging, unwavering, yet undue focus on self. That's what sin is. And it will be the death of Judas. Judas thinks that he is sacrificing Jesus. But we know how it turns out for Judas. (laughs) Again, he's ultimately sacrificing himself. That's what sin always is doing. Yes, Jesus will die, but he will rise again. And so too, Judas will die. And he will die brutally. And he will die eternally. He gave up everything. Ultimately to gain nothing. He gave up everything to gain death and hell and an eternity of suffering and a worship failure for the stupid and stubborn and sinful insistence on worshiping self above the Savior. May God save us from making the same eternally foolish mistake. These are the stakes. This is what worship is about. You're either worshiping him or you're worshiping yourself. Those are the only two options. Worship sacrifices. What are you sacrificing? And what are you sacrificing it for? What are you ultimately worshiping? Point number four, I just want you to see it. I think this is important too. Lazarus, I want you to see that worship witnesses. I'll be very brief. Again, Lazarus doesn't speak. Even Judas gets one line, Lazarus gets none. But in verse 2, John emphasizes that Lazarus was there dining with Jesus. And in verses 9 through 11, the chief priests want Lazarus dead as well as Jesus. No line's Lazarus, they still want him dead. Why? Because even though he never speaks in our text, he very much witnesses in our text. The very presence of Lazarus, his life screams of the reality of the power and love of the Christ who is Lord and life. And so they want him dead because his life is proof. It is evidence of the lordship of Christ. And many are believing on account of Lazarus. So the application is not complicated. Our very lives are meant to witness to the reality of our Lord. And such witness is worship. None of us would deny that we have a witness problem. And again, we have a witness problem, ultimately because we first have a worship problem. We get so caught up and consumed and concerned with all the difficulties of evangelism and all the fears. And again, I I am chief of sinners. I am right there with you. But it's not supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be worship. It's supposed to be, I'm alive. I was dead, spiritually dead, hell bound, forever dead. And then I met Jesus and Jesus came for me. Revealed himself to me. Saved me by dying and rising again for me. And now I live. I should talk about that. I should speak and share of the greatest and best thing that has ever happened to me. Isn't the thing, if you are in Christ, the thing that has happened to you is no less miraculous than what happened to Lazarus in chapter 11. I was dead. Oh, wretchedly dead. Wallowing in it. But now... Entirely by grace. I'm alive. Was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see amazing grace. That's all evangelism is supposed to be. That's witness. It's living your life with gospel intentionality. It's living and seeking to draw attention to worship the Lord by drawing people's attention to his glory and his grace as it has been revealed um, so clearly in the salvation of your soul. And so I think we have to struggle with it in part first because we struggle first with the worship, with the love and adoration of the Christ who is our life. Mary doesn't care. Mary doesn't care what she does. She's so caught up and consumed with the Lord. That's where I want to get. I'm not there. Pray for me to get there. I want to be there. In verse three, the house is filled with the fragrance of Mary's perfume. You know, I think he mentions that on purpose. I could not help but think of the the last time a smell had been mentioned, was back in 1139, was a drawing attention to the odor, the rotting, decaying stink of Lazarus' decomposing corpse, right? A very evident witness of his death. But now, life. And that life is meant to be a witness to the Lord. As the fragrance of the perfume cannot be missed, the living life of a saved sinner is meant to be a perfume that people cannot miss, that is meant to draw their attention to the Lord who gives life. That's why it's so important to see that the whole of our life is to be worship. how I interact with people checking me out at the counter, how I interact with people I come across in the streets, how I speak to my daughters, how I do everything is meant to be glorifying the Lord and drawing attention to look how good that God must be because that guy was awful and now he lives. Grace, our entire lives are meant to be lived in worshipful witness to the Lord. Christian, if you are in Christ, you're alive. Be thankful for that. Act like you're alive. Give the credit and honor and glory, the worship to the one who did it all. Who who gave His all that you might live. Let's worship Him by witnessing of Him. And when we struggle to do this, as we all do, as I do, we have to get back to the basics. We have to get back to Him and ask the Spirit to give us eyes to see Him and adore Him and treasure Him and trust Him. The whole of our life is meant to be about worship uh, to our Lord. Because Christ gave the whole of his life that we might live for him. And find life and joy in doing so. See how big and comprehensive this worship thing is? It's only because he is so big and comprehensive. And he is so good that he demands such a response. And so worship serves. It adores It sacrifices. It witnesses. What are you worshiping? May we worship the king. He is the only thing worthy of your worship. He is the one you were created to worship. He is the king who died so that his enemies might live. Again, What a person this Christ is. What a king this Christ is. A dying king. A rising king. And that is a king that is worthy of our everything. Worship him. Pray with me. Let's go to him and ask for him to help us uh, worship him rightly. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Father, please help me. Father, we are aware of how short our response falls of your revelation. You are even more aware than we are. Oh, and yet you are gracious and patient and kind. You are a compassionate father who knows and loves his children. So, Father, we thank you for that patience. Father, it is my only hope that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is my only hope that Christ is my everything and has given up everything and taken on my everything so that I might live. Father, I pray that you would do what I cannot do and that you would do what none of us can do for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would help us to see and understand. Help us to rest and rejoice and delight in Jesus Christ more and more. Father, I want to love him more than I do. I want to worship him better than I do. Father, we need your help. What a gift that we have a church to do that together in. I'm so thankful. Uh, for the gathering of the saints. I'm so thankful that we get to sing, that we get to hear your word, that we get to fellowship together. Father, may Woodside Community Church be a church that worships Jesus Christ and worships him well. May we be known for worship that the world does not understand. May we look like Mary to the world in the seeming wastefulness and extravagance of our focus and love and obsession with Jesus Christ. We ask that you would make him our all in all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.